pray. God, it's almost too amazing to imagine, especially in light of what we talked about last week in terms of our brokenness, that sin is complete. It's total in us. It's affected every part of who we are, every person who's ever walked this planet. We're not just mildly sinful. We are completely and utterly hostile to the things of God. And yet, there is grace. And yet, there is a beckoning, a welcoming to relationship and forgiveness and cleansing and salvation and transformation and newness of life that comes through faith in Jesus. Oh God, I pray in these moments as we look into your word that you would do a work in us Do a work in those of us who are believers in Jesus. Call us to those things that that you welcome us to in the word. May we be those who are shining the common grace of God and the grace of salvation of God into this world. May it be reflected in our families may be reflected in this church, may be reflected in our commitment to the standard that you've given to us in the word of God. And God, I pray that you would help us as your people to trust in your sovereignty and be willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. We recognize that we have been called to this. It's a way for us to do what this song talks about. We just sang Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Spoken and pulled from from the book of Philippians where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. May the focus of our affections, the, the concentration of our joy and desires be anchored in that truth. May we, O Lord, as your people, want you above everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are joining us for the first time, we've been moving through a study that is seeking to, to look at culture and understand our responsibility as God's people in the midst of a broken culture. How do we How do we deal with the critical race theory? How do we deal with social justice? How do we as God's people engage this world in things that matter? How do we we, as God's people seek to be instruments that are useful in a way that points people to the solution that matters? The solution that will help direct their attention to eternity and not just to the things of this life. I I want really at the outset of our time together to remember why we're doing this. I I want us to remember the purpose of Jesus coming, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Maybe you can say this together with me. For, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus his son, because of love. 
But it doesn't start, it doesn't end in verse 16. It continues. Because as we saw last week, the diagnosis of our hearts, the diagnosis of our lives is severe. It says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world, excuse me, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God sent Jesus into the world because fundamentally you and I are broken. And not just broken partially, but broken completely so that we do not love God. And we cannot find God on our own. We're going to go back there this morning just briefly to, to catch us up and, and remind us of this diagnosis. And, and, I, and I just want to remind us of why we're talking about this diagnosis in the first place. It's because without knowing the bad news, without understanding the, the plight of your life, the sin and corruption of your heart, you're not going to be looking for solutions in the right places. You're going to be looking for solutions here and not looking for solutions in heaven. You're going to be looking to fix the earth instead of looking to be fixed in terms of your relationship with God. That's, that's the only wholeness that God really cares about, is bringing wholeness to life and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the outset of this message, that is what matters. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you experiencing the wholeness and shalom, the peace that God would seek to give to you that only comes one way, through faith in Christ? If you don't hear anything else in this message here, that as you repent of your sin, as you recognize the brokenness of your life, as you, as you come to terms with Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only life, then you can have a relationship with him and yet that relationship can begin today. Heaven can begin today for you as you're moving in the direction of eternity. Eternity with God through Christ. I was trying to think of a, of a good way to help us really come to terms with the, with the wretchedness of sin. What, what does sin do for a person? How does sin affect a people? And I thought about the, the people of Israel as they're making their way into the promised land. Remember that they had experienced the, the presence of God through the wilderness. They, they saw the, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. They got to experience his protection, his preservation. They got to enjoy clothes that didn't wear out, shoes that didn't get holes in them. They got to enjoy food in the desert and water in the desert, protection from enemies. They moved their way into the promised land. You would think that they would say, we're going to honor God in every way. And so they get to enjoy protection of God again over Jericho. They're told to march around the wall, 
uh, one time for six days and seven times on the seventh day. They did exactly what God said. God obliterated their enemies and they said, hey, this is gonna be a piece of cake. All we have to do is follow God's command. But God gave them one command that went along with that and it's found in Joshua chapter six, verse 18. God says to Joshua and to the people, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, meaning when you go into Jericho, everything that is there is devoted to destruction. Don't take any of that for yourself. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. Meaning, you take anything from Jericho, now you invite destruction of God on your life. So they did pretty good. Everybody and the entire camp of Israel obeyed except for one person named Achan. And, and we, we begin to move into this story a little further in, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now, immediately in your mind, you should say, well, time out. Wait a second. It was just one guy. Achan was the only one. Not in God's, not in God's vision. Not in, not in God's economy. Because sin that happens in a life is sin that affects the people around you. It's sin that, that affects your family. It's sin that affects your family, your church family. It's sin that, that begins to, to infiltrate into culture and, and to affect them in one way or the other. Your sin has an effect, and it is devastating. It was devastating for Achan. It was devastating for the people of Israel because we know, if you remember the story, the people of Israel saw the, the next little village that was in the way named Ai. And it was a small rural town, and they said, hey, well, we can take this town with two or 3,000, no big deal. So they sent uh, this little uh, uh, group, this little squadron to, to go take this town, and they get crushed. 36 men from Israel died. And they're like, what in the world is going on? Joshua asks this question to God, and God says in Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, he says, Joshua, stop crying. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. The people have done what was wrong in my eyes. And so what you need to do, Joshua, you need to find that person. You need to get rid of these devoted things that were devoted to destruction. You need to take care of this because if you don't, this is serious. Therefore, the people, verse 12, of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will not be with you anymore. That's harsh. I want you to notice a couple of things. First, I want you to notice how sin affects the people around you. And I want you to realize that the consequences for sin are severe whether you experience them immediately or whether you experience them down the road. And they were severe for Israel. They were also severe for Achan and his family. In Joshua chapter, 24, chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, in the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep 
and tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. Now, if you're wondering, wow, that's a little harsh, don't you think? What about his innocent sons and daughters? How are they part of this collateral damage? And that's because I want you to understand, as a result of last week, if you are broken as Romans chapter 3 says you are, what you deserve is not grace. You deserve condemnation. You don't deserve to take another breath. You don't deserve for your heart to beat another beat. You deserve punishment from God, judgment from God forever. You deserve to be stoned and burned. It is a grace to you that God forgives. It's a grace to you that he's offered his son, Jesus. It it is a grace to you that you enjoy another breath, that you enjoy the experience of prosperity, that you enjoy the experience of friendship and productivity. All of these things are common graces that we're gonna get to in just just a little bit. Because what you deserve and what I deserve because of sin and brokenness and being an enemy that is hostile towards God, I deserve a pile of rocks over me. And that's the diagnosis. I wanna just cover this again briefly that we went through last week. I wanna just step through this and help to remind us what this diagnosis is because unless we really come to terms with the diagnosis, God's diagnosis of our lives, we're not gonna really appreciate what he has made available to us through his grace because it's gonna be something we think we expect, not something we see as a blessing, a gift, an evidence of his goodness and kindness to us. So what is God's diagnosis of the world? Romans chapter three. If you you don't have a Bible, use the Pew Bible in front of you. I think it's page 740. I would just encourage you to turn there with us as we move our way through this. You need to see this for yourself. God's diagnosis of the world is captured for us in these few verses, and the diagnosis is bleak. It's as bad as it could be. It begins with verse 10, and, and, I, and I want you to understand that, that, that God's diagnosis is that sin corrupts every person who has ever lived. It corrupts every person who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ. Notice Romans chapter three, verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's the diagnosis. The question, By whose criteria? Who who is the one who's making the evaluation? What are the first four words of this verse? What do you see? What are they? As it is written. This is God's diagnosis. This is the coming from the authority of God himself to you. This is the authority of the word that we spoke about two weeks ago. And it is a very uh, hard reality for us to come to terms with. But it is God's diagnosis. It's based on his authority. And he doesn't need any cooperating evidence. Although he's going to give 13 indictments that we're going to follow through the rest of this passage. 
This is God's diagnosis based upon his authority. It is sufficient in that we don't need any other proof. God says it, it is true. And it's clear. It leaves no room for question, but it's direct and precise and emphatic. The the word that's used here, this word no, is not a single one expressing full and direct negation, without exception. Everyone is included. There is no righteous one. You need a solution, and there is one, but you can't find it in yourself. You're too broken for that. Every person is broken. We move on to verses 11 to 17, and we see that sin corrupts every part of who you are. If it wasn't bad enough that every person is broken, now we come to see that every part of who you are is also broken. It affects the totality of your life. Verse 11 says it impacts how you think. Notice, no one understands, no one seeks for God. You can't understand, you can't seek for God, you don't want God, You don't don't desire God. And even if God was showing up right in front of you like Jesus did when he walked to the earth and the Pharisees who knew all of the scriptures and knew all the prophecies about him, as a matter of fact, they were called in when Herod was asking, where is this little infant gonna be born? They said Bethlehem, but they didn't go. How is that possible? They're waiting for the Messiah and they didn't even care that he was in Bethlehem. It's because no one understands and no one seeks for God, not without divine light. Because there is only blindness in your heart and there's only blindness in my heart. We see that in in Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 and 18. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Can you see any more severe indictment than that? All of the terms that that the Apostle Paul uses to help uh, uncover and expose the real reality of who you are. You are dead. You are blind. You are spiritually unable to respond to anything that is godly because you can't understand. There's futility. There's darkness. There's alienation. There's ignorance. There's hardness. There's a calloused heart. You do not want God. You just want to gratify yourself. You're greedy for that. You want to fill up your heart and your life with everything that is anti-God. That's who you are. It affects the way you think. We see in verse 12, it impacts what you do. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This word worthless is useless, unprofitable, worthless and depraved, become perverse in your heart. Even the good things we saw last week, even the good things that you would try to do are viewed as unrighteousness and filthy rags. You you just bring ugliness to the table, even in your supposed righteousness. So it impacts what you think. It impacts what you do. We see in verses 13 to 14, it impacts how you speak. 
It says, your throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You ever catch yourself saying something that you regret? You ever find yourself using a tone that you wish you could retract? Do you ever come to the place where you say, oh, if, if only I could pull back those words, then you know what Paul is getting at. You, you know what is true about your lips. And, and Jesus makes it very clear that the curses that come out of your mouth, the criticism and complaining and deceiving and cutting down in the slander that happens out of your lips is just a reflection of what's truly in your heart. Because, he says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. The things that you say, the things that come out of your mouth, are just a reflection of what's really going on inside. You speak evil because you are an evil person. Your lips reveal what's truly in your heart. So sin impacts how you think, what you do, how you speak. We find in verses 15 to 17, it impacts where you go. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The reality is, what's really in our hearts is to pursue the enemy, to pursue the devil, to pursue the, the God of this world. And Jesus describes uh, our adversary in these terms in John chapter 10. He says, the thief comes not but for to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that you might have life. You want to kill because you follow after the adversary, the devil, Satan, who has in his heart to kill. It is in your heart. It's what you want. It's what you desire. If all the restraints were gone, it's what you would do. So the diagnosis is severe. And the summation of it comes down to verse 18, where it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. You don't fear God before you come to Christ, <laughs> you don't love God, you don't want God. You don't think that God is going to hold you accountable. You don't think there's any standard that is set. You're going to have what you want, and you're going to get it any way you can get it. Jesus, in addressing the scribes and Pharisees, wants them to understand why they uh, behave in such a way. In John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus says this of them. He says, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, and I am not of this world. But we, hopefully you see, there is no common ground. There's no place of intersection in terms of, of alignment. You are of your father, the devil, he says in verse 44, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This was true of the scribes and Pharisees. They, they acted out of uh, their own lineage, their own heritage, Jesus says. You're not of Abraham. You're actually of your father, the devil. And so you act just like him because he is your, he's in your DNA. Maybe you say, well, that's just the Pharisees. That's not me. Well, let me bring it home in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We need the diagnosis, remember. The diagnosis, the bad news helps you realize there's nothing within yourself that can fix you. There's no inherent goodness in you. You need something outside of you. You need God to shine his light into your life and draw you into relationship before you can ever experience the wholeness that he would have to give through forgiveness in relationship with Christ. Ephesians chapter two, one to three says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, here it is, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, by the way, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You and I are sons and daughters of the devil. We're sons and daughters of disobedience because we do what's in our heart. We do what Satan draws us into. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all in the same place. We're all broken before God. We're all desperate and in need of something to save us, something to fix us. Only God can provide that help. Only Jesus can provide true righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. You were just like everyone else in the world. You were dead in your trespasses. You followed after the cravings of your heart and those cravings are sensual, earthly, and vile. Maybe you say, well, that might be somebody else, but that's certainly not me. I I was thinking about this. I I wonder, just for the sake of a hypothetical, if you could do whatever you wanted to do, Without any, without any um, accountability, without any consequence, if you could make yourself invisible, you could snap your finger, you could be in a place and be out of a place without anybody noticing, without anybody putting you in jail, without anybody giving you a hard time, what would you do? Well, even as I was putting that together, all manner of vile things flashed into my head. And maybe you're nothing like me, but, but it, it exposed the depravity of my heart without Christ. It exposed what's really in my heart. What I, what I really want sometimes is not to, to align myself with holiness and to want what God wants. I want what pleases me, what makes me happy. And that's in every heart apart from God. All of us need to come to terms with who we really are. That's the diagnosis. And because that's the diagnosis, what we deserve is what this verse says, to be children of wrath. This is God's 
holy fury, his rage coming down on you. The stones and the fire on Achan coming down on your life because you and I deserve condemnation. And we will get it apart from Christ. But there are some ways that, that God has sought to build in and preserve culture. And, and maybe the, the next question is, well, if, if that's as bad as we are, why, why, don't we, why don't we carry this out? And why isn't the world any worse than it could be? The, the answer for that is, is found in God's design to preserve the world. That God has built in, what we're going to look at in just a moment, common graces. He's built in this grace to, to help preserve and safeguard and protect culture so that we're not as bad as we could be. This is a grace that God has given to us as God's people. This is a way to point us to the, to the real saving grace that comes in Jesus. It is a way for us to enjoy life in the here and now as a as a temporary reminder of how great life will be when we're with him in the future. Let me just move my way through these briefly. Really, these are four separate sermons that we'll preach when we get to back to 1 Peter. Every one of these graces that we're going to look at and just touch on briefly in these final few moments, I, I want you to realize these are graces that we find in 1 Peter as well, and we'll be able to, to devote some more attention to that and, and, and kind of fill that out in our understanding. But I, just for the, the, the basis of, of informing you and helping us, I want to just touch on them briefly today. First, I want to look at what is common grace. What, what does this mean when we talk about this? It says, common grace, as an expression of the goodness of God, is every favor falling short of salvation. Let me just pause there for a moment. When we're talking about common grace, it's distinct from saving grace in that everyone who lives on this planet gets to enjoy and experience a measure of the kindness of God. The, the fact that he doesn't uh, stamp their life out in the moment they are born is a means of God's grace, okay? It says falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, the natural events that lead to prosperity, and all the gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. The gift of babies laughing, the gift of life, the gift of prosperity, the gift of productivity, the gift of friendship that we get to enjoy, the gift of, of looking at a sunset and saying, wow, that is amazing. The gift of relationship and marriage, all of these things that God has given to us that we can enjoy, it is a, it is a means of his grace. We find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, it says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is God's means of, of demonstrating that he is a God who is lavish in kindness and goodness. The faithfulness of the sunshine that, that starts uh, in the, I guess it's on this side, 
starts in the east and and moves to the west every day. It it runs its circuit. We can count on it. It's, It's faithful. It's an evidence of the common grace of God for his people. There are other means of God's grace. There are other ways for us to experience the the manifestation of God in this world. And and by the way, if you remember, going back to the beginning of this year, we're talking about the glory of God. We said that God's glory is the the manifestation of his presence, is how God puts himself on display in the world. And, And this is a way that God shows up in the world through these common graces. Let me just run through them briefly. The first common grace is conscience. Conscience. We find this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All across the world, People are, have this built-in moral code. And, and even though there is brokenness there, and even though that there, are, there are differences in various cultures, there is a, a common alignment on what is good and bad, at least an understanding that there are some things that are good and bad, that there is evil and goodness, that there is justice and injustice, that there's freedom and guilt over sin, that there's light and darkness. This is good for them because it it helps them to understand there is something outside themselves, something that is broken within and they need a solution that they need to find outside of themselves. This is also good for you and for me as we seek to engage people in sharing the gospel. We We can appeal to their sense of moral code. We can ask them questions about, well, have you honored your parents? Have you been envious or have you been jealous of other people's stuff? And the list would go on and on as a means of engaging them with the gospel and calling them to God, his grace in their life. But conscience is being attacked. Conscience is under attack by the world. He, uh, the enemy knows that this is a grace of God. This is a common grace. And, and so the only way to, for him to, to push back on this grace and to uh, blind the hearts and minds of people even more is to seek to disrupt and confuse this common grace that is written in their heart. They want to mask the pain of guilt that they feel through medication. They want to redefine the standard. They may even use biblical terms, but give them new meaning. They'll deconstruct these biblical things that that God has made very clear in his word. They rewrite the rules. They attack those who would seek to hold the line. They filter what you can see. They intimidate. They take you to court. They destroy your businesses. They seek to eliminate the consequences of sin. They seek to make it available and say, this is natural, this is good, you should be involved in these things. They glorify sin and and make it entertainment. Whether you're hearing it or seeing it or experiencing it in various ways, they want to make it as accessible as possible so they can 
deconstruct your conscience and redefine the code that God has written in your hearts. You need to arm yourself. You need to draw the line. You need to stand firm. You need to call in the defenses that God has given to you. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. How? By anchoring your heart in the word of God. By, by aligning your conscience to the, to the standard that he has set. By, by helping to recondition your heart to agree with God and the things that he has said are true. And by w- being willing to stand for truth wherever you are. There's also a grace of God in family. A grace of God in family. And doggone it, we're out of time. Phew. Luke 1, 15 and 17. Why did Jesus come? What was the point of Jesus coming to earth? Not just salvation, but it was to mend broken families. This is, uh, this is Gabriel speaking to Zechariah in the temple. This is the, the promise that he gave about John the Baptist. And, and this is what, uh, what Jesus would come to do and make possible through the cross. That you can have families that are whole, not because you're a good parent, but because you point them to Jesus who alone can bring families together. He will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, speaking of John the Baptist. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children. That's the problem. The problem is, as fathers, we get so distracted with so many other things that don't matter. We sell our soul to the workplace. We sell our soul to our uh, different hobbies that we have. We, we, we sell ourselves to, to all of these other distractions and we miss what really matters, the heart that is turned to kids and to our wife and to sanctify our families in the way God has called us to sanctify our families. We miss what God has intended to make available to us through the death of his son, that we can actually have whole families because of the redeeming, uh, regenerative work of God to, to bring them together because of the work of the Spirit and the work of salvation in her life. How does the world want to push against this common grace of family? Uh, they promote immorality. They make it as accessible as a click of a button. They'll tell you it's okay. You can have immorality wherever you want without consequence. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so they say. But let me tell you, God knows. And God will judge. It will affect you. It will affect your family. It will affect your church. Sin is seen. It has consequences. And once... What they want to do is they want you to, to, to try out marriage before you actually get married. And then once you're together, they'll say, hey, you can trade in for a better model. It's okay. They'll say the roles of the husband and wife are, that are presented in the Bible are old-fashioned and oppressive and chauvinistic. 
They would seek for you to dismiss the eternal weighty things of souls and occupy your attention with things that are going to burn up, that are temporary. Recognize that God has called you to the greatest mission you could ever have, and that is the eternal souls of your kids. How must the church hold its ground? Men, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Men, are you sanctifying them with the washing of the water by the word? Men, are you laying down the things that you want, the things that are nice for you for the sake of building up and edifying your family? Are you helping your wife know and feel affirmed in the role that God has given to her? Or are you putting in her in a position where she has to find affirmation somewhere else, find value somewhere else, find security somewhere else? May that not be true, men, husbands. Love your wife in a way that cherishes her and seeks to point her to Jesus. Hold the ground. May the church show common grace. Now, I don't want to just, I don't want to brag on my kids, but yesterday I was so encouraged. I had two of my kids that were playing in a spike ball tournament uh, somewhere in Hilliard, and I, and I pulled up to, to go pick them up, and as I'm uh, hopping in the car, there were two people that were staring at me from another vehicle. I'm like, okay, I wonder what they want. They saw my kids get in the car, and they said, you know what, your kids, your kids are so, such a blessing. And I thought, thank you, Lord. That's a grace. It's a grace to you. And it's a grace to everyone around you who sees that God can show up and he can mend families, the brokenness that is inherent in them. He can, over, he can overcome. Only, though, as you make that a priority. There's a grace of the church. We could go to Matthew and we could see in chapter 5 uh, this Sermon on the, ba- the, sermon on the Mount where, where we see that you are the salt You are light. You are a preserving force in the world that God has called us as a church to to preserve this world by by standing our ground, by by holding the line, by, by shining the grace of God, not just this common grace, but shining the light of the glorious gospel into the lives of the people that you interact with, to let them see there's something more about you than just being a good employee. But you are a good employee because you are a transformed employee, transformed by the work of God in your life. And finally, there's a grace of government. And you might say, wait a second, a grace of government? Are you kidding me? How can that be possible? Well, it's possible because that's what God says. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Just look at some of the language here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Let me repeat. There is no authority except from God. One more time. All together now. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Like it or not, your local leaders, 
your state leaders, your federal leaders are appointed by God for a reason, for a purpose. God has a sovereign purpose in, in, in bringing them to power. Now, sometimes it's to bless, and sometimes, and I just want to conclude in just one more verse, just give me a couple more minutes. It is to actually bring oppression to you so that you can point your attention to God. I'm going to get there in just a, just a minute. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. That's heavy. And those who resist will incur judgment. It's not without consequence. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for you. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. We just pause there. You might say, but wait a second. What about authorities and governments that are out of step with, with God's program? And there's certainly a number of those that exist today, right? What, what do we do about that? Well, it's better for us to obey God rather than men. But we need to understand that as we submit ourselves to the governing authorities that God has placed over us, we're submitting ourselves to Christ. One last verse I want to get to in Psalm 106 that may help just bring and fill this out for us. Notice how it, how, how it begins. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so, so the, the banner over this, this chapter is God is good, he loves you. So what does God do? Well, the whole chapter talks about how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, how he led them through the promised land, but then they consistently broke favor with him, they rebelled against him, they disobeyed him, they complained in the wilderness. Every, every single thing you can think of, Israel did. And so how does God respond? Well, God responds in verse 41 this way. He gave them into the hand of the nations. That is good. That's what a good God does. That's what a loving God does. So that those who are hated, or excuse me, so that those who hated them ruled over them. They, they got oppressors. You see that? That was because God was good. God loved them to give them oppressors because there was something more important at stake. Here's verse 42. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For, the sake, for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and, glorify, uh, and glory in your praise. God is good. God loves you. And God has a wonderful plan for your life by giving you oppressors. Because he cares more about eternity than he cares about your present comfort. Does 
And he allows hard things to happen for you because he wants you to turn to him. He's the one who brought the oppressor. He's the one who can deliver you. Turn to him. So many times, what is it in my own heart? I'll speak to myself. I want to to protest. I want to rebel. I want to demand my rights. I want to to pick it, I wanna, whatever it is, to, to reject the authority that God has placed over me, and in doing so, I am reverting to earthly weaponry instead of pulling down the strong divine weaponry from God that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be finished with this verse, I promise. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Stop employing fleshly, earthly uh, principles to fight a spiritual battle. Pull down the mighty, powerful, divine uh, weaponry that God has entrusted to you. And that weaponry is prayer, by the way. That weaponry is the word of God and the truth of God, by the way. That weaponry, by the way, is submitting to government and trusting God that he has allowed these things to happen. Stop waging war in an earthly way. If you want to win, (laughs) employ divine strength. When was the last time you prayed for your president? When was the last time you prayed for that really, well, I want to really be careful. (laughs) I find myself so often praying for Alexandra Acacia Cortez. I pray for Schiff. I pray for Pelosi. I pray for Biden. I pray for Kamala Harris because only God can change a heart. Only God can have his way. And he's given us this common grace for us to, to press in. And, and, and by the way, there, there's, there's plenty of other leaders we need to be praying for as well, okay? We need to be praying for, for our governor, Mr. DeWine. Whoever God brings to your mind, employ the weaponry of divine power. Pray. God, thank you that even though there's a hard diagnosis, there is a design for us as your people to reflect the goodness of who you are through common grace. Help us, O oh God, to hold the line in conscience, in family, in church, in government. Help us to, to reflect such a confidence in the sovereignty of God that it is distinctive and demonstrates our confidence in the gospel and our confidence in a sovereign God. May you be pleased through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning. Thanks for coming. Have a good week. 